short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War, Fidel Castro. Uh, quick overview, episode 31. Hey, Ray. Hey, Cam, how are you? Good, are you enjoying this? I am. I learned so much in order to get ready for this. But again, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a typical I'm typical American. Communism's bad. Russia's bad. Castro's bad. Cuba's bad. And then you come along and you explain it from his point of view, which we pretty much never, ever got. I'm like, yeah... I could see myself doing some of those, making some of those same decisions. I'm like, well, obviously that makes me bad. No, but um, you really do get a sense of why he did what he did. Again, he wasn't perfect. He did some some mean things we'll get into later or whatever. And um, as as Cuba struggles over the years, he's certainly not starving. He's certainly not having a hard time, even though the people are. And he is in power. He refuses to give up power. But again, you can get, you can see what he's trying to do. He's taking on the largest most powerful country in the world, 90 miles away. So it is a different story when you look at something other than just American propaganda. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that anyone has to agree with him or agree with his decisions, but I think it, it serves to try and understand his perspective and understand the situation they were in. In the last end of the last episode, we talked about, U.S. corporations owned the vast majority of Cuban land and industry um, before the revolution. Uh, After the revolution, uh, Castro and the revolutionary government approached the U.S. corporations, tried to buy the land off them, but they didn't have any cash because Batista had taken it all. And they they offered them 20-year terms at interest to buy it back. U.S. corporations told them to go fuck themselves. And so basically uh, they decided eventually that they had to nationalize all of the land. But it wasn't their first, um, the, the, the first thing that they tried to do. They didn't immediately go in and nationalize everything. As I think people tend to think that's what happened. Right. People think they just yes. went in and said, fuck you, American companies, we're taking all of your shit. Um, which probably would have even been justifiable because they had bought it uh, under a, a corrupt regime, uh, paid low rates. Uh, it's kind of like buying stolen property. You, you, somebody nicks a TV right. and then sells it to you out the back of a truck and you buy it and the cops find out that you bought it. You don't get to keep it. No. You don't get to, you don't <laughs> to sell go, it well, back to on. the owner at 4% interest. Yeah, I, I paid four bucks for that. I, uh, it's It's mine. They go, no, fuck, dude, that's stolen property. You, same thing here. They were yeah. buying stolen property. Batista, right. you know, took power by a coup. U.S. supported. Uh, U.S. corporations bought land on long terms at cheap rates from a corrupt government. You don't get to keep it just because you did a corrupt deal. You have no rights to that under 
under international this. law. Um, but even under those circumstances, Castro tried to do the right thing. He wanted the US wow. on side, basically. They wanted the US government on side, US corporations on side. They didn't, I mean, they weren't stupid. They didn't want to make an enemy of a fucking the world's greatest superpower 90 miles away. <laughs> they tried to do a deal and they basically got stepped on. And so we can pick up the storyline there from the New York Times. In the spring of 1960, Mr. Castro ordered American and British refineries in Cuba to accept oil from the Soviet Union. Under pressure from Congress, President Dwight D. Eisenhower cut the American sugar quota from Cuba, forcing Mr. Castro to look for new markets. He turned to the Soviet Union for economic aid and political support. Thus began a half century of American antagonism towards Cuba. So there's the timeline. Um, he wanted his refineries in Cuba to accept crude oil from the USSR. They refused. Uh, the American sugar quota, there was basically a certain amount of sugar that America had agreed to buy from Cuba that had been in place for years before the revolution. It was mm -hmm. their major um, market for sugar, which was Cuba's major crop. And Eisenhower cut it substantially, and then they ended up wiping it out altogether not too long after that. Um, so again, straight up, they're trying to cripple the economy of Cuba. This economy, which is already fucked for most of the people, 20% chronic unemployment. Yeah, and the bank accounts are empty. And what do the Americans do? They try and crush it even further straight off the bat. So where yeah he's got to turn to someone he's got to fix his country he's got to save his country from starving to death he's got to do something and that's when they turn to the Soviets keeping in mind this is fifty nine sixty uh, most of the world still trying to recover from World War Two right um, the UK most of Europe still trying to drag themselves out of the desolation of World War II. Even the Soviet Union is still trying to... People who have listened to this show um, uh, our other episodes know that the USSR was devastated after World War II, as was all of Europe. Uh, tens of millions of people dead uh, in the Soviet Union alone. Uh, 7,000 towns destroyed. Um, their, their entire economy destroyed. So they're all still trying to build themselves pull themselves out of that. Um, and so where's 92% of the gold at after World War II? Yeah, in, in the United States. <laughs> so, yeah, the biggest market in the world, world's only real military and economic superpower after World War II, the United States. And they're not only refusing to deal with Cuba now, they not only supported a corrupt regime in Cuba previously, now they're trying to crush the Cuban right. people and the revolutionary government uh, we're even not, further. Yeah, we're not going to buy the one crop that you focus on. We're going to cut back or whatever. And like you've said a billion times in all of the years I've known you, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he turns to the Soviet Union. He's got to do business with someone because Cuba has got to survive. It has the right to try to survive. And this is when they start to really become communist is they're going to yeah. deal with the Soviet Union. It's obvious at this juncture that they're not going to have a congenial relationship with the United States, which means they're going to be cut out of the United States' sphere of influence, which is massive, um, obviously. So they need to 
join an alternative economic and political system, which mm-hmm. is obviously going to be Soviet communism. Although they don't adopt the Soviet model, um, yeah. In in many ways, they have their own model. They they sort of invent their own way of doing things in lots of ways. It's a little bit Marxist, a little bit Leninist, but a little bit Fidelist as well, Guavariist maybe. Right. Anyway, let's get on with the New York Times uh, version. Finally, in 1961, he gave the United States 48 hours to reduce the staff of its embassy in Havana from uh, to 18 from 60. A frustrated Eisenhower broke off diplomatic relations with Cuba and closed the embassy on the Havana seacoast. The diplomatic stalemate lasted until 2015 when embassies were finally reopened in both Havana and Washington. Damn. Um, One of the reasons and the main reason why he told them to reduce their staff is because he believed rightly or wrongly that a lot of the staff were trying to sponsor counter-revolutionary groups in Havana. They were uh, causing trouble. Uh, willing, uh, offering to provide money, weapons to counter counter revolutionaries who were still around. There were still uh, some of Batista's old soldiers and police officers and people like that that hadn't been executed. There was thousands and thousands of them mm-hmm. still in Cuba that hadn't been executed, that weren't in jail, um, and 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 former people that profited under the Batista regime who were very open to the idea of overthrowing the revolutionary government. And, of course, the Americans were talking to them about providing them with money, weapons, support. And so that's why Castro said, all right, you've got to get these guys out of the country. No, he didn't stand them all up against a wall and shoot them. <laughs> right. He, he said, you need to get rid of most of the people out of your embassy because we don't trust them. A prudent move. During his two years in the mountains, Mr. Castro had sketched... By the way, the New York Times doesn't mention any of that. Don't mention any of the reasons why he wanted them to downsize their embassy. It just makes him look, <laughs> just, makes him yeah. look like he's just arbitrarily a dick. you know. Right. During his two years in the mountains, Mr. Castro had sketched a social revolution whose aim, at least on the surface, seemed to be to restore the democracy that Mr. Batista's coup had stifled. Mr. Castro promised free elections and vowed to end American domination of the economy and the working class oppression that he said had caused it. Despite having a law degree, Mr. Castro had no real experience in economics or government. Beyond improving education and reducing Cuba's dependence on sugar in the United States, his revolution began without a clear sense of the new society he planned, except that it would be different from what had existed under Mr. Batista. At the time, Cuba was a playground for rich American tourists and gangsters where glaring disparities of wealth persisted, although the country was one of the most economically advanced in the Caribbean. Well, I'm just going to say like Trump, he probably didn't think he was going to win. <laughs> well, partly that. Partly, um, I think uh, they didn't really... I mean, it's true. They were young. They were inexperienced. Um, all of that is true. Castro himself readily admits to that in his autobiography that he wrote 10 years ago in my life. He says, man, we made so many mistakes um, in the first decade or two. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just trying to do the best we could do, you know, with the resources we had, with the yeah. knowledge we had. We tried to figure it out. We, no one had done this before. Um, so, yeah, uh, he, he willingly admits they fucked up a lot of stuff, made a lot of mistakes. Um, so, I mean, I don't think any of that is really an issue. 
Uh, at least they mention here that it was a playground for rich Americans. They mentioned gangsters briefly. They mentioned wealth disparity briefly. They say it was the most economically advanced in the Caribbean, um, and that's true to a point, but the benefits obviously went to the 1% or the, the 10%, whatever we think it was, the, the rich right. upper class, the, the managerial classes, uh, the owners, the gangsters, and a lot of it went offshore. Here's how Fidel depicted it at the UN in his speech in 1960. First of all, the revolution found that 600,000 Cubans ready and able to work were unemployed, as many proportionally as were unemployed in the United States at the time of the Great Depression, which shook this country and which produced a catastrophe here. We found permanent unemployment in my country. Three million in a population of just over six million had no electricity and therefore none of its advantages and comforts. Three and a half million people lived in shacks or in slums without even minimal sanitation. In the cities, rents took almost one third of family incomes. Electricity rates and rents were among the highest in the world. 37.5% of our population was illiterate. 70% of rural children lacked teachers. 2% of our population suffered from tuberculosis, that is to say 100,000 people out of a total population of a little over 6 million were suffering from the ravages of tuberculosis. 95% of children in rural areas were suffering from parasites. Infant mortality was appallingly high. The standard of living was appallingly low. 85% of the small farmers were paying rent on their land to the tune of almost 30% of their gross income, whilst 1.5% of all landowners controlled 46% of land in the countryside. The proportion of hospital beds to the number of inhabitants in the countries was, was ludicrous when compared with countries that have even halfway decent medical services. Public utilities, electricity and telephone services all belonged to US monopolies. A major portion of the banking sector, importing businesses and the oil refineries, a greater part of the sugar production, the lion's share of arable land in Cuba and the most important industries in all sectors belonged to US companies. The balance of payments in the last 10 years from 1950 to 1960 has favoured the United States vis-a-vis -vis Cuba to the tune of $1 billion. This is without taking into account the hundreds of millions of dollars that were extracted from the country's treasury by corrupt officials of the dictatorship, which were later deposited in US or European banks. A poor and underdeveloped country in the Caribbean, with 600,000 unemployed, was contributing $1 billion over 10 years to the economic development of the most highly industrialized country in the world. It, it's a fucking speech like that that makes me want to be a revolutionary. I mean, just goddamn. This pa these people are suffering. 10% are doing well because they started working with the powers that be. The rest of the resources goes to the United States or Europe or whatever. I mean, this country is being raped on an hourly basis. How... Could they not try to rise up and take their country back? I mean, it's just appallingly pathetic that he has to somehow justify what he's trying to do. I agree. And note that um, the New York Times doesn't provide any of this perspective in their coverage, right? 
Good point. Uh, Good point. I mean, just and, and 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 I and I read often in the New York press or people ranting on Facebook. You know, Castro deprived his the Cuban people of freedom, of their freedoms, like. It was fucking paradise on earth when the revolutionary <laughs> government took over. I, I honestly don't think most Americans who say that have any comprehension of what Cuba was like before the revolution. Now, that's no in no way a justification for repression or oppression afterwards, and we will look right. at that and explore that. But you have to draw a line in the sand and realize what it was like, what the, what the Cuban people's lot was like before the revolution. to know what he was building from. It's a bit like when I talk about when the Bolsheviks took power in in Russia after their revolution in 1917, what life was like for most Russians then, how backwards Russia was under the czars, Mm -hmm. and they're in the middle of World War I, what the Soviets, uh, sorry, what the Bolsheviks inherited has a lot to do with what Soviet Russia was like 10, 20, 30, 50 years later, compared to where developed economies around the world were at in 19, say, 17. You look at where Russia was at. That that was their starting point. That's what they had to work with. Right. And, and the other thing is, I'll show um, you. Can, from what, just from what we've covered so far, what I know going forward is that you can certainly accuse Castro of not being a very good manager of this country, politically, economically, whatever. But the point is, I mean, yeah, they like you were saying, before he came along, these people had nothing. He's coming along. He's trying to give them something. Something He's got the United States messing with him. And he's not the greatest economist in the world or whatever, so he's not doing a great job. But at least he's not purposefully taking everything that could possibly matter to these people that could possibly help these people it's a, it's a playground for the rich and they're just making money and they're taking it back home which doesn't help Cuba at all and it was and it was supported and in large part directly run by US governments and US corporations all of you know the, the situation that the Cuban people were in was created by the US in large way I mean it had been like that probably when the Spanish ran it as well before up until right. 1898, 18, But it, as Kennedy said, Kennedy pointed the finger at the U.S. for playing a large role in the state that Cuba was in um, during the revolution, up until the revolution. But the other reason this is important to recognize is that Castro and the revolutionary government, rightly or wrongly, believed that that's what the U.S., wanted for Cuba before the revolution, and that's what they wanted to return to. And that's what Mm. he was fighting against, was allowing the U.S. government and U.S. corporations to return Cuba to that. That's why, I mean, that, that pretty much forms the baseline position for what the revolutionary government has done for the next 60 years, is to try and stop the U.S. from turning Cuba back into its playground again. Um, so anyway, it, it, it's important to have an, a deep understanding of what it was like before and why it was like that to understand a lot of what they did afterwards. After taking power in 1959, Mr. Castro put together a cabinet of moderates, but it did not last long. He named Felipe Patsos, an economist, president of the Banco Nacional de Cuba, Cuba's central bank. 
But when Mr. Patsos openly criticised Mr. Castro's growing tolerance of communists and his failure to restore democracy, he was dismissed. In place of Mr. Patsos, Mr. Castro named Che Guevara, an Argentine doctor who knew nothing about monetary policy, but whose revolutionary credentials were unquestioned. So a couple of things here. They also don't mention that, I don't know if people know this, but Castro also wasn't the first president of Cuba. There was a other, another guy who was, uh, who was a, a judge. They appointed a judge president. Um, they appointed mm. this guy, economist, to be the president of the bank. They didn't last very long um, for a variety of reasons, depending on who you believe. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's not like these the the hard right, uh, sorry, the hard left communists took all these positions initially. They tried to put moderates, judges, economists into these roles. But for anyone, this is a big job. I don't know if anyone could have solved this easily. Again, the country was completely fucked when these guys took over. To try and solve problems of that magnitude quickly is a major, major task. It became clear, I think, also in those first couple of years, as I've said to Castro, that the United States was a belligerent. They were not going to cooperate with Cuba, with the new government. So he had to turn to communism. Uh, and, you know, communism, let's just be clear, is about control. Essentially, you can boil it down to control of the sovereign wealth of a country by its people. That's essentially what communism is at its core, mm-hmm. that it's the the people who have say over the sovereign wealth of a country, not private interests, not corporations, the people. And that was uh, the way they decided was the only way out for, for Cuba, especially once the US closed its doors to them. Opposition to the Castro government began to grow in Cuba, leading peasants and anti-communist insurgents to take up arms against it. The Escambre Revolt, as it was called, lasted from 1959 to 1965 when it was crushed by Mr. Castro's army. Oh, they neglect conveniently to mention that this revolt was organized and supported by the CIA. Um, <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Oops. Uh, also, no mention of the bombings of sugar refineries and cane fields by the US during these years when they're talking mm. about revolts. Um, they, they literally ran bombing campaigns to destroy the infrastructure of the Cuban economy to, again, make it harder for the... <laughs> for the communist government to uh, survive. Very, very hard. You're starting from like a million below zero as it is, and then the US come in and bomb the assets that you have. Right. Uh, Yeah. But, you know, it's it's Che Guevara's fault because he didn't have any background in monetary policy. (laughs) Yeah. As the first waves of Cuban exiles arrived in Miami and northern New Jersey after the revolution, many were intent on overthrowing the man they had once supported. Their number would eventually total a million, many from what had been proportionally the largest middle class in Latin America. Okay, so a bunch of assumptions here that they had once supported him. Really? Yeah. Uh, If they were from the middle class, you can't say that they were from the largest middle class and that they supported the overthrow of the middle class or the upper middle class. Because right? they were doing pretty, pretty good. 
Yeah, why would the upper middle class want to be overthrown? Uh, want to overthrow themselves, except if you're Fidel. Because <laughs> he did. Exactly. Um, yeah. So most were exiles made up of the people, as we said, that were profiting under the Batista regime or the soldiers or the police, or whatever, that had worked for the Batista regime. They were the elite. They were the previous elite of Cuban society mm-hmm. who were pro- profiting from the exploitation of the poor and so they went to Miami, and of course they're not going to be happy about what had happened. We we understand that. They weren't happy about losing their status, their cushy lifestyles, their mansions, all of that kind of stuff. The Central Intelligence Agency helped train an exile army to retake Cuba by force. The army was to make a beachhead of the Bay of Pigs, a remote spot on Cuba's southern coast, and instigate a popular insurrection. Finally... We've taken this far into the article to mention the CIA's involvement in Almost o- trying to overthrow Cuba. Mm. Well, this, the part of the sentence I like was that the CIA helped train an exile army. It's like the army was there. It's struggling against Castro. And the CIA says, oh, we'll, we'll help you. We're not in charge. We're not in control. We're not funding it. It's like they're assisting this this small, eager band of freedom fighters. I mean, again, just the spin on this is pretty impressive. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it was um, this was a deliberate strategy that came out of the CIA. Let's grab a bunch of exiles, ex-soldiers, ex-Batista soldiers mostly, and uh, train them on U.S. soil, which they did. Arm them, supply them, and send them back to. Ma- and the reason they were using Cuban exiles here is it's it's for the it's for how it looks, right? It's it's the propaganda value. It's right. not America overthrowing the Cuban government. It's Cubans overthrowing the Cuban government, counter-revolutionary force. It was for the optics of it, as we would say in modern parlance. It's how it looks. Uh, and the CIA's role was to be behind the scenes. That wouldn't get talked about in the media. If it had been successful, it would have been hidden from public perception, public view. Mr. Zulk, then a correspondent for The Times had picked up information about the invasion and had written an article about it, but the Times, at the request of the Kennedy administration, withheld some of what Mr. Zulk had found, including information that an attack was imminent. Specific references to the CIA were also omitted. Here we have admission by the New York Times of the New York Times hiding information from the American people about the role of the CIA and the U.S. government in the overthrow of Cuba. But Castro's the bad one. <laughs> They're the ones with propaganda. I mean, I don't, I don't know if... Does, does that... Sh- <laughs> As an American, Ray, yeah, even America that's had to deal with me for the last few years, corrupting your tiny brain. Right, but, thank you. You're welcome. Like, does that shock you or surprise you the knowledge that the New York Times was withholding information in a story at the request of the U.S. government about the role of the CIA in overthrowing a country? Well, I'm just going to put it this way. If you if you sit down and you read this article in its entirety and print it out on regular eight and a half by 11 paper, it's 24 pages. But by the time you get to this point... And, and I'm being totally serious because, you know, I'm an American, whatever, and I, I, I certainly love my country as flawed as we are. I mean, by the time you get to this point in the article, 
I don't think you're, I don't think I'm going to be as stunned as I should be because they've already painted Castro as bad as is probably crazy. Uh, he's, he's making his people suffer. The American, the Americans are, are just, uh, no, we want everybody to be happy. So this, so this paragraph by itself should be staggering, should be amazing. And it should have somehow been omitted itself from the article, but, but it wasn't. And, but it's also the, but it's also the York, New York Times going, see, even we can tell the truth. Once it's semi-safe for us to tell the truth, because I was a different New York Times, I was a different editor, I was a different writer, I was a different time, different president. So here we are being upstanding and virtuous by telling you the truth. But if you really think about what they just wrote, that they hid this information from the American people, that should be staggering. But it's not because of where it's at in the article and the context around it. Yeah, we can tell the truth 60 years later. That we withheld, at us. that we withheld information uh, from, you know, the the, the people of America. Um, that we that we lied, or we we lied by omitting information as we as we do. So um, yeah, I mean, man, Fuck it, I, it's I just, just war. I mean. <clears throat> You know, I I I, I try and, and convey, I guess, a lot um, in various podcasts and conversations that Americans have been living under a system of propaganda, um, and this here is is evidence and admission of it. Now, the question, I guess, we all need to ask is: Well, did that stop at some point in time? The media omitting <laughs> uh, vital information in the way that they cover stories. Right. Um, if so, when and why and how? And if not, is it still going on today? And if, when, uh, how often? Uh, if so, when, how often? Which articles? Why? Right. I, I personally reached the conclusion many, many years ago that we're still being propagandized to by... I mean, it happens in Australia as well. I'm not just saying it's the US. It happens in all Western countries where our media is controlled either by corporations or sometimes we have government-owned media. Here we have uh, the ABC and SBS in Australia, radio and TV, um, or you have sometimes publicly funded media like NPR, which gets a bit of government support in the US, um, Mm -hmm. PBS, NPR, those sorts of um, organisations. But the vast majority of our media is controlled by corporations that have an interest in... um, how the people think, what the people know, how the people vote. Um, so I just urge people to really uh, take on board this admission by the New York Times that, in this case, they withheld information that was probably vital at the time. Ten days later, on April 17th, 1961, 1,500 Cuban fighters landed at the Bay of Pigs. Mr. Castro was waiting for them. The invasion was badly planned and by all accounts doomed. Most of the invaders were either captured or killed. Promised American air support never arrived. The historian Theodore Draper called the botched operation a perfect failure and the invasion aroused distrust of the United States that Mr. Castro exploited for political gain for the rest of his life. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. 
Yeah. Now, I know you're going to tear this apart, but I just want to say, yeah, that very last sentence. Yet we did try to invade and topple your government. But let's point the finger at Castro for taking advantage of this situation. (laughs) I mean, how pathetic is that? We kept your, we kept the vast majority of your population poor without electricity or running water, living in shacks, no education, no health, ravaged by disease for, for decades and decades. And then we tried to invade your country when somebody tried to do something about it. But yeah, it's Castro exploiting that. <laughs> Just the use of the word exploited that for yeah. political gain. Like, fuck you, it, New York Times. It's, it's well written. I'll give them that. You know, the way they put the emphasis, I'll give them that. What they didn't mention here is the promised American air support. So basically, the the quick backstory, this invasion was sort of planned and authorized, approved by Eisenhower, Um, didn't take place until after the election, 61. See, the election's at the end of 1960. Kennedy's inaugurated in the beginning of 1961. Um, And Kennedy, Jack and Bobby kind of go along with it, despite a lot of misgivings. They kind of get pressured into it by the Pentagon. And um, the CIA. Uh, and then when it kind of fails kind of immediately, they, they're looking for, they need Kennedy's support to send in the Air Force for air support. And he says, right. no. He goes, no, that's, this is, we're not doing this anymore. This is ridiculous. I've only been president for four fucking months and I'm, I'm going to send in the Air Force to a country that's done nothing to us. Like, <laughs> uh, really? No. And he pulled the pin on it. And... I believe that was when he signed his death warrant. Mm. Um, I, I believe that Kennedy was assassinated by a conspiracy that included members of the CIA and the mob, uh, possibly with the tacit acknowledgement of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, there was a whole bunch of people that hated the Kennedys, uh, and this is one of the major reasons for it is they pulled their support of the Cuban invasion, although they did support other things later on to varying degrees, assassination attempts and that kind of stuff. But they basically chickened out is the way it was perceived by the CIA and the mob. And the right. mob had played, depending on who you believe, a fairly large role in Kennedy's election using their influence with the Teamsters Union in particular to strong-arm certain districts to vote certain ways. Anyway, we'll get into that when we get to the show part on Kennedy's assassination. The CIA fighting the Cold War had acted out of worries about Mr. Castro's increasingly open communist connections. Sure they were, or they were just trying to help American corporations take control of Cuba again. (laughs) Win-win. Yeah. As he consolidated power, even some of his most faithful supporters grew concerned. One break had taken place as early as 1959. Huber Matos, who had fought alongside Mr. Castro in the Sierra Maestra, resigned as military governor of Camagüey province to protest the communists' growing influence as well as the appointment of Raul Castro, whose communist sympathies were well known as commander of Cuba's armed forces. Suspecting an anti-revolutionary plot... Fidel Castro had Mr. Matos arrested and charged with treason. That's their version of the story. Castro provides a very different version of the story, as you would expect. He says, what happened is that we lost a lot of troops at the end, in the last offensive, and Huber Matos came to be given a squad during the offensive because he had a certain degree of education and we had to reinforce ourselves. 
At the end, we had to give him a column of several dozen men, well-armed, but you could already see that he was arrogant, ambitious. Almost out of necessity, I assigned him that column during the last phase of the war. What I mean is that he hadn't been with us at Moncada or on the Grandma, which is true. So I don't know which version of the story is true. Castro says that this guy... Um, you know, wasn't one of the real revolutionaries from the get-go. He had pro-capitalist sympathies, um, but took part in the revolution for personal gain. And when that right. when it became clear after the revolution that he wasn't on the same side and was actually trying to overthrow the revolution, yeah, they had him arrested. New York Times doesn't provide that version of the story. I, I, I'm not saying one is true and the other is false. I'm saying that there's right. no balance. There's no perspective. They're providing the version of the story they that fits in with their narrative right. and completely ad, uh, omits the other side of the story. And, and it's being written as if there could not possibly be any other information added to or taken away from what we just wrote. So, yeah, it's yeah. just complete. Yeah. They're stating it like it's fact when it's Absolutely. just opinion. Exactly. Within two months, Mr. Matos was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Now, here again, they're admitting that he he had a trial. You know, th- th- yeah. there's this, again, perception that the, the, these things are just done summarily, but here, here he was, very early stages of the revolution, he had a trial. And he wasn't executed. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. When he was released in 1979, Mr. Matos, nearly blind, went into exile in the United States where he lived until his death in 2014. Shortly after arriving in Miami and joining the legions of Castro opponents there, Mr. Matos told Worldview magazine, I differed from Fidel Castro because of the original objective of our revolution was freedom or death. Once Castro had power, he began to kill freedom. Now, like all the freedom the Cuban people had before the revolution, as we've pointed out, um, the people of Cuba have much more freedom today uh, than they had under Batista. Um, So, you know, it depends again on whose version or which, which definition maybe of freedom you believe in. And again, they're quoting Matos's version of the story. They completely leave out Castro's version of the story. So again, they're presenting bias as fact. Yeah, I mean, if someone threw me in jail for 20 years, maybe because they sensed I was going to go after power or I was going to not play along with him and I got out of jail, yeah, I'd be a little bitter too and I'd say some mean shit about the person, whether it was real or not. So again, you just have to take everything with a grain of salt. And the point that he was tried, convicted, sentenced to jail, and then released at the end of his sentence... I mean, on one hand, everyone tries to portray the Castro government as brutal, oppressive, you know, killing people, executing people. And here they are admitting that somebody who was trying to overthrow the government was tried, convicted, sent to prison and released at the end of it and allowed to go to the United States where they knew he was going to kick up a ruckus about Castro, but they let him do it anyway. Like... Do you get not, like how that it yeah. doesn't it doesn't fit the fucking story that we not that we your get typical told, right? dictator? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saddam would have had the guy put in an <laughs> acid bath, <laughs> absolutely. <sighs> acid, which is how we get the United the, States, which is how we got the Joker. Or no, that was something different. <laughs> oh, that'd be a cool like retcon version of the story, though. <laughs> It was not until 
just before the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Mr. Castro declared publicly that his revolution was socialist. A few months later, on December 2nd, 1961, he removed any lingering doubt about his loyalties when he affirmed in a long speech, I am a Marxist-Leninist. Many Cubans who had willingly accepted great sacrifice for what they believed would be a democratic revolution were dismayed. They broke ranks with Mr. Castro, putting themselves and their families at risk. Others from the safety of the United States publicly accused Mr. Castro of betraying the revolution and called him a tyrant. Even his family began to raise doubts about his intentions. Now, now yeah. yeah. I just have to what? say as an American, you've said that the Bay of Pigs was uh, planned for years under Eisenhower. So a little while before the Bay of Pigs, he says that my revolution is was socialist. And after the Bay of Pigs, he mentions that he's a Marxist-Leninist. So how in the hell do you have a attempted coup for someone who just recently admitted after the fact that you tried to have a coup, that he's a Marxist-Leninist. I mean, it, this has nothing to do with communism at this point. They're trying to get the country back under American control, and they're just using that as an excuse. I just found the timeline of that whole section there very disturbing. Yeah, it's dodgy. I mean, apparently, uh, when he went to the UN in 1960, um, he met with Nixon, he tried to meet with Eisenhower, but Eisenhower went on a week-long golfing trip to avoid him for the period that Fidel was in uh, New York <laughs> and Washington. He took off. So he met with Nixon, who was vice president at the time, and um, he, according to Castro's version of events, he spoke for an hour or two. Nixon didn't say much. Um, and then, uh, according to US records, afterwards, Nixon just wrote, this guy's a communist. Because um, I guess... Well, Fidel was talking about, I imagine, uh, giving the people back some rights, <laughs> increasing the standard of living of the people, de- uh, lowering down the control of U.S. corporations uh, and Cuban industry. Nixon Pico just decided, bastard. oh, you sound like a pinko, yeah. But again, this section that I just read out, there's, again, no balance. They say that there were people who broke ranks with Castro, putting themselves and their families at risk because he was betraying the revolution. Well, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure there were people who felt that way. And even if they uh, uh, didn't believe in his reasons for moving more towards communism because the U.S. weren't going to deal with them fairly. Um, but what about the millions that supported him? Millions supported the revolution at that point. Yeah. Um, even his family began to raise doubts. Some of them, a couple of them, most of them. He had seven or eight brothers and sisters. Most of them were supporters of the revolution and stayed. So again, there's no balance in their reporting here. They pre- they are presenting their their narrative, and they're giving a very one-sided view of it. As I listened, I thought that surely he must be a superb actor. Mr. Castro's sister Juanita wrote in an account in Life magazine in 1964, referring to the December 1961 speech. He had fooled not only so many of his friends, but his family as well. She recalled his upbringing as the son of a well-to-do landowner in eastern Cuba who had sent him to exclusive Jesuit schools. In 1948, after Mr. Castro married Merta Diaz-Balat, whose family had ties to the Batista government, his father gave them a three-month honeymoon in the United States. Now, they quote one sibling, but not the rest, as I said, who stayed and supported the revolution. They don't mention that Juanita was a CIA collaborator. Um, They just prevent her view as if that's the view of all of his family when it's not. Right. 
Although the young Fidel was deeply involved in a radical student movement at the University of Havana, his early allegiance to communist doctrine was uncertain at best. Some analysts believe that the obstructionist attitudes of American officials had push, pushed Mr. Castro towards the Soviet Union. Well, there's some truth in that, and I read that quote from Castro himself in 1960 at the UN saying exactly that. Look, we were only slightly pink at best until you guys shut and slammed the... <laughs> slammed the door in our face and put your boot on our throats and then we decided okay well we need a we need a we need to, we need friends we need allies we need to join the communists indeed although mr castro pursued ideologically communist policies he never established a purely communist state in cuba nor did he adopt orthodox communist party ideology Rather, what developed in Cuba was less, less doctrinaire, a tropical form of communism that suited his needs. He centralised the economy and flattened out much of the traditional hierarchy of Cuban society, improving education and healthcare for many Cubans while depriving them of free speech and economic opportunity. Oh, it was almost a compliment until the end. Depriving them of free speech and economic opportunity. 20% chronic unemployment. 95% uh, kids had no teachers, 75% illiteracy. That's what he was depriving them of? Seriously? Yeah. Like, fuck off, New York <laughs> Times. Seriously. Where do you get the balls? Enough now, now, you might say, well, they didn't have free speech after the revolution and he should have given them more free speech or he should have given them more economic opportunity. Um, that may be what they're hinting at here. But they didn't have it before, certainly. It's not like he took it away. Um, right. And that's what they're implying. Yeah. Now, um, there's also no mention here of the need to prevent CIA propaganda and espionage. And, and I'll talk about that, um, I guess, a little bit later on. But unlike other communist countries, Cuba was never governed by a functioning Politburo. Mr. Castro himself and later his brother Raul filled all the important positions in the party, the government and the army, ruling Cuba as its maximum leader. Uh, again, not true. I mean, there were other people fulfilling important positions in Cuba. He, yes, Fidel and then Raul uh, in the last decade was the maximum leader. <clears throat> I have to say with a huge amount of popular support as well in Cuba, unless you believe that they're all feigning popular support because they're scared of the alternative. Maybe true. I, I can't say one way or the other, but they certainly claim to have been, you know, supportive of Fidel as the as their leader, uh, a lot of them do, whether they're saying that under duress or not, I, I can't say for certain. Right. Um, and, and, and the other part was, and this is what I was picking up in the documentary about, he would literally drive around, meet people, say hi, whatever, and he would go to different places, spot a problem and solve a problem and then move on. And it, whether it was a big problem or a little problem, it didn't matter. He would see a problem, try to solve it, whatever, come up with an idea and then move on. He literally tried to micromanage and you can't do that when you have an island of six million people. So he could have used a better organization. He could have delegated a little bit more. But the point is, I mean, he was sincere in trying to help the people, but he just was a horrible or paranoid or both delegator and they didn't have an or good organization to, or it could have been a lot better. And I think a lot of these people, like the article mentioned earlier, those were people who he could trust 
as opposed to maybe they were really good at their particular job. So the infrastructure could have been a lot better. But again, like you said, the CIA has constantly got people out there trying to overthrow him. I mean, he's got to be careful. He's got to keep a lid on, on most aspects of life, because if he doesn't, he's going to end up dead or there's going to be a counter-revolution, and all of his compatriots are going to be wiped out. Yeah, look, in terms of him being a micromanager, look, I think I agree with half of what you said. He reminds me in this way, uh, many ways, again, of Napoleon. Napoleon had his fingers in everything. He right. believed, rightly or wrongly, that he was the smartest guy in the country, and he needed he, he was best positioned to have a 50,000-foot view of what everything where everything was, what needed to be mm-hmm. done, what the big issues were, and he was the man to get it done. And now, Napoleon, unfortunately, wasn't in power for 60 years, uh, or 50 years, as Fidel was. Um, his his um, regime, if you like, got terminated a lot. So, but he was very similar. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily true of Fidel, the depiction that you uh, put forward. I think he did have a lot of people, a lot of smart people, uh, trying to run the country. Yes, he got out and got involved and uh, walked the streets and, and went to factories and farms and, and made uh, suggestions for improvements throughout his entire life. He was actively involved. He was what we in, in corporate world we call a, a, like a CEO who rolled up his shirt sleeves, didn't just sit in a glass corner office. He got out yeah. and talked to the people and tried to get you know get down in the dirt um, with a with a machete and cut cane and try and figure out you know wh- how are we doing it can it be done better he was constantly right. pushing for ways to improve it but I don't think it was all him I think he was trying to uh, bring up new generations of people that were as um, that were that were educated on on agriculture and the economy and manufacturing and farming and different ways all this sort of stuff but I, yes I, but he was very yeah. hands on kind of a guy. Absolutely, I agree with that. I just was referring to the well, I didn't say it, but I was referring to the part of the the documentaries where I saw where um the Soviets come in and they pretty much not like you you're doing a lot of this economic stuff wrong. Uh, we're going to take over. We're going to advise you or whatever. So there is some stability brought by the Soviets. But again, he, but but I totally applaud that he's out there. He's mixing with the people. There's a video of him going out there and taking a bat at uh, he, some locals are pitching it to him and he's trying to hit the ball and they strike him out. He does get angry. He applauds them or whatever. And he's out there cutting mm-hmm. sugar cane and stuff like that. So there's a lot of amazing things where he's out among the people and you've got to give him, you got to give him cre- credit for that. You just wonder again, the United States is trying to shut this entire thing down economically. So yeah, they're only going to be able to do so well when the most powerful country in the world is working very hard against you. And if you're cynical, you might say that these were all, I mean, him cutting cane or playing baseball or whatever could be just propaganda sessions, which is possible. But there are countless and countless stories of him working 20-hour days his entire life until he was in his, uh, until he was 80 and his health got the better of him and he had to uh, retire as uh, president. But constantly working, uh, had an amazing mind. You watch any interview with him or read interviews with him, and an incredible mind for detail, facts, Um, one of those brains that was just brilliant in terms of his ability to comprehend, understand, break these things apart. Um, But, you know, 
not perfect. They made a lot of mistakes, as we've said before. They were trying to do the best that they could do. Young, inexperienced guys and, and women who took over a country that was fucked and were trying to rebuild it while at the same time being attacked by the world's greatest superpower 90 miles offshore. Anywho, let me keep going. The Cuban regime turns out to be simply the case of a third world dictator seizing a useful ideology in order to employ its wealth against his enemies, wrote the columnist Georgie Ann Geyer, whose critical biography of Mr. Castro was published in 1991. Again, just a critical view, no balance, no no <laughs> positive biography quotes. Have they said anything nice yet? Because there was the one where improving education and health care for many Cubans, comma, while depriving them of free speech and economic opportunity. So I don't think there's been anything yet saying that he has improved the any part, any aspect of the Cubans' lives. No, not really. They hinted at it, but then they slammed him with the next sentence. Like it, it's like a the journalist tried to write something positive and their editor went, no, 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 we have to finish it with this sentence, otherwise people will think something nice about him. Um, in this view of Mr. Castro, he was above all an old-style Spanish Codillo, one of a long line of Latin American strongmen who endeared themselves to people searching for leaders. The analyst Alvaro Vargas Losa of the Independent Institute in Washington called him the ultimate 20th century Codillo. Independent Institute, not so independent as it turns out, funded by lots of American corporations, but nice name. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, any balance? There we have two critical quotes, basically just calling him a strong-arm dictator. Anything to balance that out, New York Times? No. This is our view, and we're just going to give it to you, and uh, you just better believe it. In Cuba, through good times and bad, Mr. Castro supported ref- supporters referred to themselves not as communists, but as fidelistas. He remained personally popular among segments of Cuban society, even after his economic policies created severe hardship. Whose policies? Yeah, not the US embargo. The US <laughs> sanctions against him for 60 years created hardship. It was his economic policies. As Mr. Castro consolidated power, eliminated his enemies, and grew increasingly autocratic, the Cuban people referred to him simply as Fidel. To say Castro was considered disloyal, Although in later decades, Cubans would commonly say just that and mean it. Or they would invoke his overwhelming presence by simply bringing a hand to their chins as if to stroke a beard. Um, here's another quote from Fidel. Uh, this is my notes uh, in his UN speech. It is clear that if the revolution was ruining the country, the United States would not have had to attack us. They would have left us alone so that the U.S. government would have appeared as a good and honorable government while we revolutionaries proceeded to destroy our own country. This would demonstrate that revolution should not be carried out because revolutions destroy countries. Fortunately, that is not the case. There is living proof that revolutions do not destroy countries, and this proof has just been supplied by the U.S. government. It has proved many things in particular, that revolutions do not destroy countries while imperialist governments do destroy countries. Good point, I thought. If it was the revolutionaries' communist policies that destroyed the economy, why did the US need to put an embargo on it in the first place? They could have just gone, listen, we'll just be hands off. You're a bunch of communists. You're going to destroy the economy. 
We don't need to do anything. We'll just stand back and let you do it yourselves. Right. And you'll come begging to the people come begging to us once you finish wiping out the economy. Not mm. as such. Mm. Or maybe, you know, after five years of the embargo or 10 years after the embargo, they could have gone, you know what? You're doing such a good job of destroying your economy yourself. We're going to lift the embargo. Trade freely. We believe in free trade. Exactly. Trade freely with the United States. We've got nothing to lose. You're going to come tumbling down like the house of pinko cards you are. But no, no, <laughs> they couldn't allow them to do that because fuck it. They might know what they're doing or they might have figured it out. Ah, uh, fuck. Mr. Castro's alignment with the Soviet Union meant that the Cold War between the world's superpowers and the ideological battle between democracy and communism had erupted in the United States' sphere of influence. Hold on. Thought the United States didn't believe in, believe in spheres of influence. Uh-oh. Just ours, nobody else's. That's a slip. Hmm. A clash was all but inevitable, and it came in October 1962. American spy planes took reconnaissance photos suggesting that the Soviets had exploited their new alliance to build bases in Cuba for intermediate-range nuclear missiles capable of reaching North America. As one of our listeners pointed out, and rightly so, in the last Castro show, no, sorry, in the first Castro show, I said there were nuclear submarines. I misspoke, and I I knew that uh, immediately afterwards when I listened back to it. They were land-based nuclear missile silos, not submarines that they put there. Thank you, whoever it was that pointed that out. And he apologized afterwards, and I said, no, I'm always happy to be corrected. A, it means that people are listening, and B, it means that we do a better show. Um, So they say here that the, the Soviets exploited the new alliance to build the bases. Now, really what happened was Castro said to Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Soviet Union at the time, they they just tried to invade us. They're going to try again, bigger, badder invasion. We need mm-hmm. to we need defense. Can you help us out? Khrushchev said, "Sure. How about we we put we send we'll send some army down, but we're going to put a bunch of big fucking missiles on <laughs> around the country right. and say, hey, attack us again. You're going to get nuked. So th- it was a defensive mechanism. They're the way again the Times portray it here is this was the Soviets trying to sneakily put missiles in there so they could threaten the United States. They don't point out that it was to defend Cuba against invasions by the United States that were, in fact, right. being planned at the time. Operation Northwood was being planned by the government at the time. It was killed by the Kennedys, but it was being planned, signed off by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense, submitted to the Kennedys. Um, but the Kennedys said no. But, you know, Castro knew it was going on. They knew that the U.S., you know, last time it was 1,500 Cuban exiles. Next time it could be 100,000, 500,000 U.S. troops. Right. Uh, with fully, real weapons. Fully equipped. Again, yeah, with real weapons and planes and shit. Right. What is he supposed to do? Just sit there and twiddle his thumbs? No. He calls, in, he calls in the cavalry. The cavalry just happens to be Khrushchev and nuclear missiles. Mr. Castro allowed the bases to be constructed, but once they were discovered, he became a bit player in the ensuing drama. Overshadowed by President John F. Kennedy and the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, Kennedy put United States military forces on alert and ordered a naval blockade of Cuba. The two sides were at a stalemate for 13 tense days and the world held its breath. 
Finally, after receiving assurances that the United States would remove American missiles from Turkey and not invade Cuba, the Soviets withdrew the missiles and dismantled the bases. And that was the whole point. The missiles were there to protect them. If you promise not to invade, we'll remove the missiles. I mean, scary as hell, don't get me wrong, but that seems fair. It seems fair. Also, they just briefly point out here that the Americans had nuclear missiles in Turkey pointing at the Soviet Union. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, right? So quid pro quo, guys. If you've got nuclear missiles pointed at the Soviet Union, why can't the Soviet Union have nuclear missiles pointed at you? Um, Yeah, but that, you know. Again, when I hear Americans talk about the, the nuclear, this Cuban Missile Crisis... I often get the feeling that they they go, well, Castro had let them point missiles at us. Of course we had to invade them in the Bay of Pigs. Like, yeah, you need to... <laughs> Somebody literally said that to me on Facebook like uh, no, a couple of years ago. I said, yeah, I think you need to check your timeline there, sunshine. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, Castro wasn't really happy about the nuclear missiles at all. Um, he was happy to have them removed. He didn't want to... No one wants to be part of a nuclear war. Now, there are there are criticisms pointed at Castro here for a letter that he wrote to Khrushchev during the nuclear missile crisis, the Cuban missile crisis, which often come up. This is a letter where allegedly Castro said to Khrushchev, look, if they invade us, you should hit them with a nuclear strike, preemptive nuclear strike. Yeah. And Khrushchev said, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you fucking crazy? <laughs> Now, he, Castro gets criticised a lot for that in the US. Now, again, here this is a situation where there are multiple versions of the story. Um, according to Castro, what he wrote in the letter said something to the effect of, if they launch a full-scale attack on us uh, it's uh, and wipe us out, it's... it's, it's um, a logical conclusion that they will next launch a nuclear attack on you and you should be ready to launch an attack on them at the same time. If they if they launch a massive invasion on us, you should be ready to attack them uh, with a nuclear strike. Um, yeah. But only if they come at us, because they're probably going to come at you next. They will see that as a, a an act of war. They will know what that means, and they'll probably be getting to ready to launch a nuclear strike on you. He believes that that was either mistranslated in a hurry into Russian to say that you should attack them first, or that you know even if they attack us, you should attack them first. So there was um, there was he believes it was a mistranslation or a misunderstanding by Khrushchev of what he was actually saying. He and this is. Uh, if you watch his documentary that he did with uh, Oliver Stone late in life or in the autobiography that he wrote with Ignacio Ramonet, um, you know, he says, look, what I said was if they launch a massive attack on us, then they're probably going to come at you next and quite quickly. You should be ready to attack as well. Right. 
And here's just the other part of that. Like you said, one, he didn't want the missiles. He wanted tanks and planes for a conventional war, a conventional defense. Two, he was happy when the missiles were gone. Three, the letter that he sent to Khrushchev, according to one uh, biographer, I can't remember his name, was actually rewritten like 10 times. And even though he kept trying to tone it down or whatever, by the time it got to Khrushchev, it was still a pretty hot letter by saying, yeah, you need to be ready to defend yourself. If they come after us, you've got to be next. I mean, that's the logical conclusion. And But either, no matter how many times it was edited, by the time it got to Khrushchev, Khrushchev realized he was dealing with a guy who seemed to be, on the surface, willing to die for principles. If they come after us, you better be ready to take them out because you're next, and at least we'll have died for something. So again... You've got to at least respect that that the ideologue in in Castro. Well, I don't know. If there's anything about an ideologue involved in that man? That's just common sense. If they're gonna, if they're gonna, if they no, come he, at he us, they're saying, gonna come at you. If they're gonna no, come at saying, you, be ready to, right. you know. Do no, what he you was have saying that basically, if we die and 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 they don't do anything after come after you, we die. But if they, but uh, um, but if we die for a reason that helps give you time. To defend yourself, then we have done something. So he was saying dying for a reason is better than dying for no reason at all. But again, Castro kind of, I mean, excuse me, Khrushchev kind of got an idea of the type of person he was dealing with. But again, it was diffused and and, uh, Castro was more than happy once the missiles were removed. Although, as we said in the first episode, he would have preferred that the terms were stricter against the U.S., like remove Guantanamo Bay off our land and, uh, you know, end the economic embargo, but, right. uh, you know, and stop trying to assassinate me, you motherfuckers. But, uh, yeah, none of those things were, were put on the table. But the right. Soviet presence in Cuba continued to grow. Soviet troops, technicians and engineers streamed in, eventually producing a generation of blonde Cubans with names like Yuri, Alexei and Vladimiro. The Soviets were willing to buy all the sugar Cuba could produce. Even as other Caribbean nations diversified, Cuba decided to stick with one major crop, sugar, and one major buyer. Now, I like this criticism, um, and I thought when reading this, A, it's a tiny island. They don't have a lot of options in terms of what their economy is based on. I thought, well, what was the economy based on before Fidel? Well, it was mostly um, sugar and mining, the same as it was afterwards. Um, Gambling and prostitution, yeah. And that, right, tourism. Yeah, tourism was a big component. I thought, well, let's look at other tiny islands that are controlled by the United States and see how they're doing by comparison. Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico, uh, officially, it's an unincorporated territory of the United States. They took control of that around about the same time they took control of Cuba after the Spanish-American War. Today, it is poorer than Mississippi, which is the poorest state of the U.S., with Damn. 41% of its population below the poverty line. So, sure, let's criticize the Cuban economy. Let's have a look at how Puerto Rico's doing, shall we? 41% of the population below the poverty line. Is it communist? No, capitalist run by the United States. So that's what that's where Cuba could would probably be today if <laughs> If the United States continue to run it, it's poorer than Mississippi. Hawaii, let's take another island. This one is a state of the United States. Hawaiian exports include food and clothing, um, but those industries play a fairly small role in the Hawaiian economy due to the shipping distance to viable markets 
such as the west coast of the contiguous United States. So shipping distance is a big role, plays a big role in your ability to export products. Now, mm-hmm. Cuba, a lot of people have said to me, well, okay, so the US couldn't trade with, uh, sorry, Cuba couldn't trade with the United States. What about the rest of the world? They could trade with the rest of the world. Yeah, but they're a long fucking way away from the rest of the world. And <laughs> it's expensive to put shit on a ship and send it to the other side of the world. It's right. expensive, and, and that gets built into the cost, which makes makes trade, particularly if you have closer, cheaper sources of products, uh, makes it difficult. So mm-hmm. I want to point out here that even Hawaii struggles to export things that it manufactures, uh, like food and clothing, because of distance. This is true, too, with Cuba. Tourism is the biggest industry in Hawaii, most coming from the United States. Um, in 2014, a record 8.3 million visitors arrived in Hawaii. 59, 60% were coming from the United States, 18% from Japan, 6% from Canada, 15% others. So, yeah, biggest, biggest part of the Hawaiian economy, which would probably be the biggest part of the Cuban economy, if they mm-hmm. hadn't been, if, if US uh, visitors hadn't been banned by the United States government, would probably be tourism. 60% of those came from the United States for Hawaii, which is a fucking long, long way away, a lot longer <laughs> away than Cuba is from the United States, right? Right. In 2009, also, the United States military spent $12 billion in Hawaii, accounting for 18% of the spending in the state for that year. So can you imagine how, what the Cuban economy would be like if it had access to American tourists' uh, dollars over the last 60 years? Yeah. Um, or if it could trade with the United States and export its goods there? So I just, you know, again, yes, the Cuban economy is fucked. And yes, admittedly, I happily admit uh, part of it, maybe even a large part of it, has to do with trying to implement a centrally planned state economy, which no one's ever done successfully because it's very, very difficult and because there's no roadmap for how to do it. And when these guys Mm -hmm. were trying to do it in the 50s and 60s, they didn't have fucking iPads and computers to help them plan all of this. They were doing it with pencils on pieces of paper. It had never been done before. And they're trying to invent a new way of managing an economy in a fairer way than it's managed under capitalism. Um, And it's hard. It's difficult, and they fucked up, and they failed. But again, I point to the early centuries of capitalism, and you you can easily see that capitalism took centuries to kind of balance itself out where there was a middle class. For most of capitalism's history, there was a handful of rich people and a lot of poor people, and the poor people were massively oppressed by the rich. And in mm-hmm. the last, and it's real, <laughs> and it's really only been sort of post World War Two right. that the U.S. has been able to build a middle class for twenty or thirty years, and then we know that has stagnated since Reagan was elected in nineteen eighty one. So, yeah. in the history of capitalism, there was a middle class for thirty years, uh, and you know most of the rest of the time, it's sort of not been going well, and 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 the communists have struggled for a whole variety of reasons. 
Um, at partly, they don't know what they're doing. B, it's hard. C, they didn't have computers. But a big part of it, particularly in Cuba's case, is the economic embargo and all of the restrictions that placed on their economy, plus the starting point where they were coming from. <sighs> yeah. I mean, you, and you've got to say it over and over again to get through the programming to us Americans. I mean, yeah, it's like they're communist. Communism doesn't work. It's evil. It's bad. They... They don't care about people, and but you got to you got to understand the underlying, the real underlying issues beneath it, and it does start to make sense. But I know you're getting tired of saying it, but for a lot of people uh, from my country, they need to hear it more than a couple of times for it to begin to sink through. Uh, yeah. Look, um, we're over an hour again, and we've still got a ton of notes to go, man. <laughs> like I know. I'm- I know. I'm starting to wonder. <laughs> should we do? Should we do another hour? Well, how about this? Um, it, I think we should do another show and wrap it up in the third hour. But I don't know if that should be like not put out for another week, like part three. You know, like a week later or whatever. Maybe put it out afterwards. I don't know, but we should probably do a, a, another show as opposed to doing another hour. And I don't know. Do you want to give them a two-hour show? Do, whatever. No, let's cut it here and do another do another hour. Fuck it, be a four hour Castro series, man. Fuck, fucking a, yeah, he look, deserved look, it. I mean, yeah, he, he deserved it. Yeah, hey, look, and this is and you know, it's important for all those reasons I said before. He's one of the major figures of the Cold War, and this teaches us so much about the revolution and capitalism versus communism and the bias of the media and the propaganda, which um, is the whole point. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's just t- tidy this up then. So that's it for episode 31. And there is going to be an episode 32 more, <laughs> we think, the last episode on this very brief introduction to Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Um, thanks, Ray. Thanks, everyone. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. <laughs>